0: You're listening to episode 14 of the Almost Sideways podcast. On today's episode, I am once again joined by Todd and Zach as we give some updates to our top 10 films of 2017. We also review the new films Last Flag Flying, 12 Strong, and Hostiles. We discuss the career of Nicolas Cage by determining his greatest war performances. Our power rankings talk about the worst best picture winners of all time. And our Oscar trivia talks about best picture winners as well. See who comes out on top on this episode of the Almost Sideways podcast. Here we go.
1: Give me a go, no go for launch.
0: Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was going to say something that
1: was not true. I I don't know why we do these. This is all totally not getting cut out. Yes. We are go for launch.
0: All right, everybody, welcome back to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are here, episode 14, and we did some math, and this is like the six-month anniversary of the podcast. How ridiculous is that?
2: We're entering the third trimester.
0: It's there amazing. you go.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so in three months, that's when we're going to pop, and then uh, everyone's going to know about us, right?
2: Yep. They already Exactly. <laughs>
0: They already do. They already do. Well, once again, uh, my name is Terry Plucknett. I am the host of this little uh, this little thing we got going on here. Uh, with me once again is my brother Todd Plucknett. How's it going, Todd?
1: Uh, it's
2: going
0: pretty good. And also we have Zach Saltz all the way from Kansas. How's it going?
2: Uh, it's going pretty awesomely here.
0: So uh, before we get into everything, we did have like one of the sporting events. Um. Of the year, uh, between now and when we recorded last, and that was the Super Bowl, um, where <clears throat> surprisingly, somehow Tom Brady lost, and the Eagles got their first Super Bowl championship. You guys have any uh, any takeaways, any thoughts on uh, on the big game?
2: Well, the big story of the game was uh, Malcolm Butler's benching prior to the game, which I think was completely unexpected. There's a lot of rumors circulating about why uh, he was benched for the game. He appeared very emotional on the sideline during the National Anthem. And uh, the best theory I've heard is my own theory, which is that uh, he badmouthed my cousin Vinny to Coach Belichick before the game, and... uh, got in trouble for it because, as we all know, Coach Belichick is a big fan of My Cousin Vinny and, in particular, Marissa Tomei's Oscar-winning performance.
1: I like that I theory. I heard that one. That's a really good one, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't mouth off to Coach about his favorite movie. I find it funny that the
0: game kind of came down to the fact that Nick Foles could catch a pass and Tom Brady couldn't.
1: Well, yeah, Foles also had a... Uh a former quarterback thrown in the ball like I, I I was thinking about that was the first Urban Meyer coach quarterback to throw a pass in the Super Bowl
2: <laughs> that's a great stat Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'll be seeing Cardale Jones there anytime soon
1: yeah not, not, not definitely not Alex Smith now that he's in Washington uh
0: the other big story around the Super Bowl is of course the commercials um you guys, did you guys have a favorite coming out or, or something that was disappointing? Or what were your, uh, what were your takeaways from the, uh, from the commercials? I know, Zach, whenever we would watch the Super Bowl together, that was always a big topic of conversation.
2: Yeah, we would take bets beforehand. It was a great prop bet that I'm surprised Vegas doesn't do, you know, predicting the best Super Bowl commercials before the game, although they released a lot of them before the game. I don't know, Terry, the one uh, I texted you about was that awesome Chris Hemsworth, Danny McBride, Australia commercial, which I didn't even realize was a real movie, but it looked (laughs) awesome. I mean, particularly when they were, like, wine tasting. I mean, there were definitely some elements of Sideways in this, in this commercial. And then, like, it, then it became a, you know, an Australian travel commercial. And I was so disappointed. And then you told me that it's, like, a real movie. So I'm totally pumped. For, le- legit, like, that movie makes my top ten most anticipated movies of the year now. You know, I can't wait. It Dundee, isn't a man. real
1: movie. <laughs> it's just, it was just a commercial for Australian it was, it was It's not a movie. No, Why is a Dundee not... movie coming out? Yeah, that's what Terry said. I everything I everything I saw it said that it was a ho- it's a hoax movie. All right, we're well, looking we're looking this up.
2: <laughs>
1: we
0: obviously are diligence for this if, podcast. If it's a if it's a hoax movie, they should change that because that movie sounds hilarious.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm. I, I, Seeing a lot of articles about it being a fake movie but in this day and age when a new uh, cloverfield installment is released without any prior you know publicity i think we can expect anything so i wouldn't be surprised if it's actually a real movie that they're pretending to make fake that's like hashtag 2018 i didn't even
1: know paul hogan was still alive
0: Yeah, how about that Cloverfield movie? They debut the trailer during the Super Bowl and
1: with an immediate release on Netflix as soon as the game ends. I think that's pretty awesome. I think that if they do it right, with it, like with an actual good movie, then I think that that could really change a lot of things if if that actually is able to work. Available strictly on Netflix in like an hour, like like, and that's the first thing you see from it. That's that's pretty awesome.
2: Yeah, I don't know though, because I would agree with you in theory, (laughs) Todd, but I don't know any person that actually watched that movie, and it got really horrible reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, everyone was like, oh yeah, this is an awesome viral marketing strategy, and like, oh yeah, it's really cool, but no one actually watched it. I think after the game, um, everyone was just exhausted, so.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's actually a good movie, but, I mean. And you know, you couldn't miss
2: the new episode of uh, This Is Us, the way that NBC was promoting that. Like, I was going to say, every if it's an actual brand. good
0: movie, then everyone's going to be watching that instead of This Is Us.
1: Well, and you would think, I mean, Cloverfield is sort of a weird case anyway, but, I mean, it was a sequel, so that, that like that was a good way to kick it off. It just apparently the movie sucked. I don't know. I would say probably my favorite commercial,
0: I, I had two favorite commercials. First off, um, the build-up to the Eli Manning, Odell Beckham Jr., uh, Dirty Dancing lift was pretty outstanding, and I also have to go with you know anytime you can uh, get people realizing just how cool Peter Dinklage is. I think it's it's a worthwhile ad. So the uh, the uh, Peter Dinklage Morgan Freeman lip sync battle uh, for Doritos and Mountain Dew, I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed because yeah, Peter Dinklage is the man, and more people need to know that. <laughs>
2: Well, he's not quite Eric Roberts' level, but he's getting there. I will say about uh, the Odell Beckham commercial, like, where does that rank on the list of career achievements by Odell Beckham? I mean, that's got to break, like, the top two, right? I mean, has he done anything more impressive in the NFL than that commercial?
0: One catch. That's about it.
2: Yeah, and then number t- number two <laughs> is this commercial, or arguably number one is this commercial. I don't know. I was surprised Eli was able to lift him. <laughs>
0: valid point valid point <laughs> it looked like but he was the struggling other thing that w- like it was
1: about to give out his back or something the
0: other thing that was established is eli manning definitely
1: cannot dance <laughs> that was yeah that was he's definitely like peyton's brother that they have like the best dry sense of humor like i'm sure that it, like his
2: choppy feet was actually intentional <laughs> So, you know, the, I think the underlying kind of, kind of uh, elephant in the room here is, you know, uh, Bob De Niro and Jackie Weaver's reaction in Silver Linings Playbook. I mean, somewhere in the cinematic universe, you know, they're, they're uh, praising their good juju for this, you know. Ten years removed well, well, from the season depicted in Silver Linings Playbook.
0: Well, Bradley Cooper got to have a seat in the box right next to the owner of the Eagles, so uh, it was on somebody's mind.
1: You think they're going to put a statue of Nick Foles next to the Rocky statue?
0: (laughs) The new catch. (laughs) (laughs) Go down in history right along with Jeff Haastetler. Best backups to win a Super Bowl.
1: Or you could even say Tom Brady was that, too.
0: Well, uh, thank you guys so much for listening to uh, our podcast here. Uh, Make sure you get on iTunes, rate, review, subscribe so that we can be heard by more people. You can also find us on almostsideways.com, where we have our database of movie reviews and ratings. Uh, Find us on Facebook, find us on Twitter, uh, find us on YouTube with uh, Adam's Almost Sideways YouTube channel. Uh, Right now, we're gonna get into what we're really here to talk about, and that is the movies, and we're gonna start with some movie reviews.
1: I love this movie so much. Some really excellent performances.
0: I did not really like this film at all. Movie Reviews A month ago we put out a podcast that was talking about our top 10 movies of 2017. And one of the things that we talked about in that podcast is we had some uh, glaring omissions of things we hadn't seen yet. Uh, Well, we've seen some of those movies now and our top 10 lists have actually changed since uh, that last time we talked to you about it. So we're going to go through... And talk about a couple movies that have cracked our top 10 in our uh, our top 10 update here. Uh, Zach, why don't we start with you? I know you have two or three movies that are new to your top 10.
2: Yeah, yeah, some significant additions to my top 10. so uh, I think literally the day after we recorded that podcast, I went to go see Call Me By Your Name. And that was a movie that easily uh, emerged as a, a top film of the year for me. I now have it ranked number two on my 2017 list, and uh, I know Todd had it on his list. Where did it rank on your list, Todd? Do you remember offhand? Uh, I have it currently number five. Yeah, uh, I think I I think it's a mesmerizing movie. Um, oh, Adam well, the best does have the... it
0: number two, by the way.
2: Well, there you go. Adam, Adam, and I both uh, both can see. It. So, have you seen it yet, Terry? I have not. Okay, so this would be interesting because um, this could be the one film that could crack all four of our lists. Uh, unless did Adam have Get Out too? I can't remember. He did. So right okay, now so. we
0: put together our uh, our top five of the year as a collective, almost sideways group, and right now Get Out is number one because it is the one film that is on all four of our lists. However, it's at the bottom of several of our lists and could fall off in the in the coming weeks and months if we see more things. Like, for me, it's nice. number 10
2: right now. Yeah, I think I had it number 9 as well. Um, but Call Me By Your Name is is a great movie. Uh, Luca Guadagnino, um, an amazing directing. Todd is pretty... I don't know, Todd, if you're still on the bandwagon for the Adrian Brody 2002 Oscar upset for Timothy Chalamet, but if I were an Oscar voter, I would have voted for him. He's completely compelling and charismatic on screen. He has a great presence. Um, And the cinematography is beautiful, and it's a movie that gets better as it goes along. It has the feel of, like, 1960s and 70s French films, like Louis Mao's films and Eric Romare. And uh, it's just a throwback to that kind of cinematic tradition. And I would say that more than any other movie of the last year, uh, I I was in a packed uh, house watching the movie, like packed theater, and everyone totally shut up. There were no phones, no talking, nothing. It engrossed every single member of the audience. Um, And it was an amazing experience. So... Highest recommendations to call me by your name. Awesome movie.
1: All right, Todd. Do then, you have any uh, any additions? Uh, yeah, uh, when we recorded that podcast, uh, I was most upset that I hadn't seen Phantom Thread yet, and it lived up to the hype. And at least in my, uh, at least the hype that I put on it, uh, I think the movie is <laughs> is fascinating. Like Paul Thomas Anderson has reinvented himself like several times now. Like he's abandoned his ensemble dramas, and he's. And then he's now done a like stoner mystery comedy, and now a movie about dressmaking in nineteen fifties London. Like it's it's pretty amazing what he's able to do. It starts off as like this, uh, really sort of classical romance, sort of old fashioned, and then it. But there's always this like feeling of like Hitchcock in the background, like it's Rebecca or Suspicion. But there's also a feeling of Bergman at the same time and like uh, pta paints everything red like it like it is like a bergman movie it's it's really really interesting and daniel day lewis is nowhere near as like understated as it as it makes it seem in the trailers he's he's astonishing and uh and, co- and controlling in the in this role and he's completely ocd and and uh and like anything that would set off his daily routine, it just, there's just like this like impending outburst that's coming, but it never necessarily does. It, it, it like all comes back to Johnny Greenwood's score is, his like demonic piano music just completely shapes the movie and makes you feel like there's always something lurking underneath the surface. And it's it, it absolutely should be the Oscar winner for best original score. And Vicky Creeps is uh, should have been nominated for best actress. She is incredible as well. And, uh, it's, it's basically in a tie for first, uh, and with two other movies for 2017. I have Get Out, Three Billboards, and Phantom Thread. You ask me on any day, wow. it could be any of those. I've seen Get Out five times, and it still is, like, the most enduring movie of the year. Three Billboards is the movie that was the best, like, movie-watching experience I had in, in the year. But Phantom Thread absolutely haunted me for days and days, and I couldn't get it out of my head. So... I'll say it's number one for right now, but I need to watch it again for it to really solidify that spot.
2: Yeah, I really like, like Phantom Thread, 2, and I'm really glad that Daniel Day-Lewis got the nomination, and you're totally right about Vicky oh, Creeps. Yeah. She should have been nominated as well. She was fantastic in that movie.
1: Yeah, she reminded me of, like, when I when I first watched Vicky Cristina Barcelona and, like, seeing Rebecca Hall, because, like, Vicky Creeps is also, like, a, a sort of plain-looking girl, and she, her her emotions seem really genuine and stuff like that i every everything about that character i believed and that's kind of the same way i feel whenever i watch rebecca hall Uh, i have not seen phantom thread yet Uh, i'm hoping to see
0: it soon um actually call me by your name and phantom Thread* are the only two best picture nominees i haven't seen which is like a record for me before the oscars
2: the movie shot beautifully. I mean, this is it was it nominated for cinematography because it, it should have been the cinematography and art direction is amazing in the movie. and I would agree with the score. like the technical elements are superb. Um, I didn't like where it went the last half hour. That was my only real issue with the film, but but the setup was was awesome.
1: Yeah, it definitely gets a little kinky uh, near the end, which I, I kind of appreciate. That was like where I first like felt like I was watching a PTA movie. But no, it was not nominated for cinematography. That's a travesty. Paul Thomas Anderson actually did his own cinematography for the first time, and he was like he like un- made himself uncredited. So I don't even know if it was even eligible.
0: All right. Well, I have a new uh, new uh, entry into my top ten as well, and uh, that is Lady Bird. Uh, I went and saw this movie. I think the week after we talked about uh, our top tens. This is one where when I first watched it, I was trying to figure out what all the buzz was about, but it was one that as you live with it for a little longer, it just sticks with you, and you just realize just how much you enjoyed it from start to finish. It's a movie you just get to live with for a while as you get to experience these people's um, uh, lives and their situations. Uh, Honestly, I wanted it to be about an hour longer because I just wanted to see more uh, from these characters. Um... Uh, because it's just real life. Every character is real, they're relatable, and they're memorable. Saoirse Ronan is absolutely incredible. She's only 23 years old, and this is already her third Oscar nomination. All of them are greatly deserved. Uh, Laurie Metcalf plays her part to perfection, um, and we all know moms like that. And she's so real in how she plays that part, um. I had a personal connection to the story because Ladybird graduated high school in 2003, which I also did, so that I kind of had that connection there of I could relate to everything that was kind of going on in the background because I was right there too. Um, but yeah, I, I, I loved it, and it was one, like I said, as I thought about it more and more i realized just how much i loved it it is number seven on my list now which unfortunately knocks the big sick out of my top 10 i loved being able to say that was in my top 10 but ladybird definitely deserves to be in there um over the last couple weeks also i saw a few other films that are in my 11 to 15 range right with the big sick uh those are movies like molly's game Itania, and the shape of water they're all very good just not good enough to get into that top 10. Alright. Uh, Zach, do you want to uh, briefly mention a couple others that have uh, cracked your top ten?
2: Oh yeah, sure. Uh, well, the only other one that cracked my top ten, you, you mentioned in passing, Terry, and that is Molly's Game. Molly's Game now ranks number seven or eight on my list, depending on the day. Uh, again, a film that I saw pretty pretty quickly after we recorded the podcast a couple weeks ago. I know it, was, it cracked Todd's list. Um, I was reluctant to see it because, I don't know, you sort of know what you're getting with Aaron Sorkin to a certain extent, but uh, I was actually really impressed not just by the quality, the high quality of the dialogue, which of course is really literate and erudite and articulate, but also um, it's actually really well directed. There's a, there's a very good visual flair and uh, the production design looks nice. Um, it is probably the fastest two hour and 20 minute movie that was released this year. Um, it went by really swiftly. And as Todd mentioned, it has an awesome lead performance by Jessica Chastain. Uh, it's a really awesome movie that was uh, pretty unfairly ignored by the Academy. I'm not really sure why. Maybe it needed a better distribution strategy. But um, it's a really s- solid movie uh, with sort of a great kind of feminist theme. Definitely worth checking out.
1: My money was on that you weren't going to like that, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you agree.
2: Yeah, I remember. You texted me and said I was going to hate it. And then, like, I texted you back and I was like, you know... Feminism and poker and Woody dialogue—like, how could you not like it? It's it's an awesome experience. So,
0: is there a, a worse fun. Aaron Sorkin actor than Kevin Costner? I mean, he everything about Sorkin is is the fast paced uh, dialogue, and every time Kevin Costner opened his mouth, the entire scene came to a screeching halt.
2: I, I didn't have a problem with him. Yeah. I yeah, not I mean, a fan. It, it's, Not a fan. It's hard to.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. Sorry, yeah, Sorkin dialogue isn't the easiest to say, and, and yeah, Costner did sort of like slow down the movie when he was in it, but I don't know. Maybe that was just the character. That character was sort of like a jerk. I don't know. I don't know who else would have played it. Okay, let's move on. Uh,
0: so we also have uh, some more recent films that we wanted to uh, talk about. We all didn't see the same thing, so we're all going to talk about different movies uh, this time around. Uh, Todd, what, Todd, why don't you start us off with uh, your film you are reviewing for us today?
1: All right. I had the uh, pleasure of watching the new Richard Linklater movie, Last Flag Flying, and uh, which is the spiritual sequel to The Last Detail, which was a Jack Nicholson movie in the 70s that uh, I've seen a lot of like Hollywood's elite saying that it was one of their favorite movies and one of like the inspirations were why they wanted to get into filmmaking and Rick was actually one of them. Uh, I actually had it as my frontrunner at the Oscars at one point and there are parts where I could see that I was actually on the right track but I don't know, it kind of loses its way about halfway through. Uh, it takes place 30 years after The Last Detail, when the three leads were together in, uh, serving in Vietnam. Uh, Brian Cranston plays Sal, which is the reincarnation of Nicholson's badass Badesky character, and he owns a bar now, and he's visited by Doc Shepard, which is, the Steve Carell. Steve Carell plays that, and it's the Randy Quaid part, and they eventually go visit Reverend Mueller, who is, uh, Lawrence Fishburne playing the Otis Young part, and, uh, they hadn't seen each other in decades and they catch up and eventually doc says that his son was gunned down in the middle east and he wants them to travel with him to go to their funeral and so it sets up like a standard road movie but uh if you've seen the last detail there's always so much more going on and this is it's way more dark and depressing than the comedic uh setup would uh suggest it it is really funny at times but and the and but the the actors do bring like their dramatic chops in it and makes it a pretty good movie uh cranston is amazing in his role like he's doing a nicholson impression at certain parts but when he lets his natural like actor instincts sink in like he's just a marvel to watch and Carell is kind of bizarrely miscast like he's nothing like uh randy quaid but his like downer personality really sort of fits what that role needed and fishburn's it's his best performance in like 15 years um there's a new actor i hadn't seen before jay quentin johnson is a uh, he plays Doc's son's uh, service mate, and he's uh, he's really good. I, I think he could actually be a, a, a star one day. Uh, the movie is sort of about this like camaraderie between the characters. There there's a, there is commentary on current America and the war and questions about leadership and and stuff, but it all takes the back seat. It's a backseat. It's it's a movie about grief and loyalty and heroism, and Rick really does a nice job at uh balancing the all these themes uh, there are times when it feels like one of the best movies of the year but the third act it really sort of loses its steam i it kind of got screwed out of its release which i don't really understand uh with the cast and with it being a sequel and rick's track record but uh it's a it's a pretty good movie it's funny and it's sad and stop provoking and i'll follow rick anywhere i i give the movie three stars
2: Seems, it seems like the studio may have really, like, not liked the final cut that, that came out with because I, the movie was being pretty hotly touted for Oscars, even as recently as, like, September.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really don't know what, what happened. Like, I don't even know if it actually got released at more than one theater in, like, my whole area, which is just strange. Because it did have... It was marketed decently, too. I just... It never got the publicity. Well, I'll go next with the film I'll be reviewing...
0: Uh, for my film, uh, this week I uh, popped my 2018 bubble and saw my first, uh, first 2018 film, and it is 12 Strong, the declassified true story of the horse soldiers. Uh, this was directed by Nikolai Fugelsig, and it is a true story of the first U.S. soldiers on the ground in Afghanistan uh, just a month after 9 11 occurred. Uh, So it tells the story of a task force of 12 men who are sent to join with an Afghani general who opposes the Taliban and they are going to help him conquer an Al-Qaeda stronghold. Um, So this general that they are working with insists that the best way to travel through Afghanistan is to travel by horseback and so that's why they're called the horse soldiers. So this group of 12 soldiers uh, are traveling through Afghanistan on horses with all their modern gear, uh, calling in airstrikes on Taliban strongholds throughout the, uh, throughout the countryside. Uh, this tw- uh, 12-man team is highlighted uh, by Chris Hemsworth, Michael Peña, and Michael Shannon. Uh, what's interesting is uh, Michael Shannon and Michael Peña also worked together previously on World Trade Center, so they uh, seem to have this affinity for telling stories surrounding the events of 9-11. Um as with most war films the battle scenes are the highlights of the film they're very well shot um the uh action is very uh is very good it's the best part of the movie um however what makes a decent war film a great war film is how well crafted the pieces are in between the battle sequences how well the story is told outside of the battle um these moments are filled more with distractions than anything else the dialogue at times is corny and lazy uh the beginning of the film starts with all the soldiers saying goodbye to their families and the dialogue is cringeworthy at how uh, at how bad it is at times in this these parts um and there's just some lines where it's trying to trying to kind of have this feel good uh feel to it and try and get a get a, a quote out, like there, at one point the the general, the Afghani general tells Chris Hemsworth, who's the leader of the group you know, stop thinking like a soldier and have the heart of a warrior it's like, oh, but that's that's a corny line and he also tells him it's his, it's his first time in actual combat, so he tells him he doesn't have deaf eyes, and the rest of his soldiers have deaf eyes, so he doesn't want to talk to him, It's just it's just kind of this corny, lazy dialogue and trying to get some good quotes out there Um, another thing that's distracting is Chris Hemsworth's terrible attempt at an American accent no matter what he says he sounds like he's Australian Um, and then you have like Rob Riggle is in the film he's just kind of there he doesn't really do anything however the possibly the biggest uh, distraction is William Fickner has a very oddly shaped bald head and he looks really weird. If you've seen the trailer, you know what I'm talking about. He looks weird. And uh, yeah. Anyways, there are these distractions. Uh, the best character in the movie is Michael Shannon's character. However, he's vastly underutilized and isn't in very much of it. Um, however, through all those complaints, it's an important story to tell as they honor some true American heroes who responded immediately to the attacks on our country um it is also a fascinating story that held my attention for two hours uh so overall i'm giving it two and a half stars
2: yeah i mean it it boasts a pretty impressive cast for a january february release
0: it's a it's a good story it's a story that's important to to know it's a good story that's important to get out there so it's worth seeing just for that all right now we are moving on to zach's movie review zach what do you got for us
2: all right, well, uh, I recently saw *Hostels*, the new movie by Scott Cooper, the director of Crazy Heart and Black Mass, which were two movies I really admired. Um, *Hostels* tells the story of e- an army captain played by Christian Bale in the late 19th century in the Wild West as he has to escort a former war chief, uh, Native American war chief, to his reservation. Uh, the movie's a classical Western. It opens with an outstanding quote by uh, D.H. Lawrence. The quote is, The essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. It has never melted. That was probably the best part of the movie, was that quote, because it's a great quote. Then the first scene in the movie shows, in pretty brutal detail, the killing of uh, a family, uh, a white family, in the West. And the lone survivor of the family is the mother, who's played by Rosamund Pike. And we eventually sort of see how she intersects with this uh, story of the brigade traveling north to Montana, escorting the former war chief. And uh, the movie is uh, pretty clumsy. Um, it didn't get outstanding reviews, uh, mostly positive reviews. It seemed to be touted as sort of an Oscar contender. It certainly has the cast and the pedigree to do it. Uh, Christian Bale's really good in the movie, and Rosamund Pike is fine. The move, the thrust of the movie, basically, is how this Christian Bill character, who has his pre- has prejudices against uh, Native Americans, um, is really the only one that the white settlers choose to accompany this war chief, who's been instructed by the government, by President Harrison, to go back to his his land in Montana, where he will ultimately kind of uh, live out the, his remaining days. He speaks the language, um, and uh, so, in spite of his prejudices, there are some parts of him that are maybe a little bit more sympathetic, and that's sort of the again how the movie sort of develops, which is this uh, relationship between him and the war chief who was once his enemy. And the war chief, uh, Yellow Hawk is played in a really good performance by Wes Studi. So, Roseman Pike is this widow is is along for the ride as they kind of travel through treacherous territory, where they come across. Uh, other, uh, members of, uh, they come across some Comanche who attack them, but then they also come across prejudiced white settlers who are very, uh, hostile toward them. So the title Hostiles really takes on double meaning both in terms of the, the Comanche and the, the, the white, uh, the white landowners. Um, I really wasn't impressed by the movie very much. I thought it had a very kind of heavy handed approach to the subject. It wasn't very, uh, sophisticated in its views on race or prejudice. Uh, the Christian Bale character, even though it's a really good performance, it's sort of a one-dimensional performance in a way, um, as he goes through his transformation, getting to know the West Studi character. The native cast, uh, which includes not just West Studi, but also Coriana Kilcher and Adam Beach, who you might remember from Flags of Our Fathers, is really underused. Um, the native characters aren't given much of a speaking voice, and it's really told through a white perspective and a white lens. Um, the movie kind of ends by showing us ultimately what, what comes of the relationship between Christian Bale and Rosamund Pike, which I feel like is a, is sort of a misguided misdirection on the part of the filmmaker. The focus of the film really should more have been the relationship between the white captain played by Christian Bale and Wes Studi as Yellowhawk, the, the the war chief. And yet the movie kind of subverts that and goes a different direction. So um, it's a pretty violent, grisly film that has a pretty pessimistic view about not just human nature, but the American character, the fundamental American character and race relations in the Wild West. Um, it's a very traditional Western that probably 1950s audiences would have seen as very traditional. It has some good moments, and Christian Bale is, uh, uh, has boasts a fine performance. So does West Studi, but it's pretty unremarkable, and therefore I give it two stars.
1: All right. Yeah, I'm getting to the point where I'm ready to like give up on Scott Cooper cuz like I wasn't crazy about Black Mass, so that it was decent. Out of the Furnace was a huge disappointment for me and this movie I actually had it on a couple categories my Oscar predictions in last January and the way it was received just completely just makes me pessimistic on it. Like I remember I had West Duty in my predicted
2: best Sporting actor lineup because it sounded like a really interesting character. I don't know. Another thing I would add to it is that Timothy Chalamet is in the movie, and he plays this French uh, kind of private, and he's also underused in the movie, and he has a really, really bad French accent in it. Um, So, you know, he, I think, nails it for two out of his three performances in his breakout 2017 year, but this one, uh, he really falters. I wonder if his French accent is worse than Chris Hemsworth's American accent. I don't know. That'd be a good competition.
0: That that would be a good competition. I don't know if it can get much worse than, uh, than Hemsworth, though. He, he really can't do anything but Australian.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Well, all the films that we just talked about, whether they were uh, the three we just reviewed or the ones that just made our top ten, um, all of them can either be found... Uh, uh, on disc or streaming or would still be in the theaters. So uh, if any of those sound interesting to you, definitely uh, check them out. All right, moving forward from our movie reviews, we are going to hop into War. I'm Warren Matt Damon. Today's War is going to be all about uh, a favorite actor of ours, even though he's kind of lost his way over the last decade or so, uh, and that is Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage, like I said, really hasn't made a, a significant film uh, in, oh, you could probably say about seven years or so. However, he has been uh, in the spotlight recently as he just had a big film hit Sundance over the last uh, couple weeks. And so uh, so let's uh, let's talk about what our favorite, well, not necessarily our favorite performances, but our war of Nicolas Cage, what are the most irreplaceable Nicolas Cage roles, Nicolas Cage performances. Uh, Zach, I'm going to start with you on this one. Uh, What do you think about uh, Nicolas Cage? What makes an irreplaceable performance? And what do you have as his most irreplaceable uh, performance, his highest war performance?
2: Well, it, it comes down to sort of categorizing what we really mean by war, which stands for wins above replacement. So what we're talking about here is not necessarily his best roles or even his best films. There's a lot to choose from because he's had such a varied and diverse career. Um, when I think about war, I think about what is a performance that few other actors could do. What, his repl- what is a performance that his replacement would be much more woefully inadequate at performing than what Nicolas Cage was able to do? So, using that line of logic, um, I chose uh, adaptation. Spike Jones's film from 2002, um, not necessarily the best Nicolas Cage movie per se, but it's a performance that um, is exceptionally tricky. Um, in the movie, he plays none other than Charlie Kaufman, who is the actual writer of uh, or screenwriter of the movie adaptation. And you know, if you haven't seen the movie, um, it's it, it's an interesting premise. It's a very meta. It's trying. It's it. Begins as this kind of look at uh, how the Charlie Kaufman is trying to adapt Susan Orlean's book, the book, *The Orchid Thief*, to the big screen, and the movie kind of shifts back and forth from the struggles that he has as a writer with um, the struggles that Orlean had as a writer when she was trying to put the book together. Um, also features an Oscar-winning performance by Chris Cooper. But what makes Nicholas Cage's role is so exceptional in that movie is that he's playing uh, two characters, twins. Um, Charlie's made up twin brother Donald. And uh, it sounds really gimmicky. Um, and it's debatable whether the result is gimmicky or not. I think there are some valid criticisms of the film. But in terms of the raw performance, it's pretty amazing that uh, he's able to pull off two characters so wildly different. Um, Charlie is morose, depressed, a very kind of Miles Raymond type character. He's balding, he's overweight, he's self-aggrandizing. And then Donald is the complete opposite. He's uh, charismatic funny he's sort of a hipster doofus um, very social very popular and well-liked and uh, Nicolas Cage doesn't really do he doesn't he doesn't shift these characters based on even makeup or wardrobe it's really just in how he handles himself like physically the way that he walks and sits and his mannerisms uh, talking and it's really a compliment to the versatility that Nick Cage has as an actor he can play the depressive morose type he can play the upbeat uh, positive type um, and you can see basically his whole range um, writ large in the film. So, uh, t- for me, when I think the roles that no one else could have played, you know, Charlie Kaufman and Donald Kaufman in adaptation is the first thing I think of for Nick Cage.
0: That is a that is a great choice. Uh, I'm going to go next. Um, when I think of Nicholas Cage, one of the first things that comes to mind. He's a very um, he's a very good actor in that he has a very wide range of what he can do. However. What he is probably most known for, and what I most love him for, is his uh, overacting, over-the-top, uh, crazy performances. And he makes, uh, he makes these performances something that nobody else would be able to make them. And my favorite of these performances, and possibly his most over-the-top, and his uh, most memorable, most iconic, and uh, most irreplaceable, is his role of Stanley Goodspeed in The Rock. Uh, He uh, plays an FBI scientist that is uh, forced to uh, infiltrate Alcatraz and stop uh, basically all of San Francisco from being slaughtered by a crazed military general. Um, He is, like I said, at his most over-the-top, and it plays really well with the, uh, the... nice and composed Sean Connery along the way uh, but because of how he acts it he turns this character into something where you really can't see anybody else being Stanley Goodspeed uh, it's the only person that you could see in that role uh, I need to get oh, I need to get some rockets I mean you, you, you all you hear Nick Cage in this role more than any other role and for that, he is my most ir. Irre- that is my most irreplaceable Nick Cage performance.
1: Uh, the Rock. All right, that is a uh, one of his most quotable roles, too, for sure. Absolutely, you might hear one of those later on. By the way. Tease. Okay, <laughs> uh, for me. I've always loved Nicolas Cage's outrageous roles more than anything else. So whether it's Wild at Heart, or Army of One, Moonstruck, or even Kick-Ass, like he is irreplaceable when he's at his peak insanity. Which is why I chose for his highest war, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. It's Cage at his most unhinged and twisted... Uh, it's hard to imagine any other actor that could have harbored that much energy and charisma and just like let it out with fury and no fear of overacting or getting called for being over- called out for over the top, because that is what makes Cage uh, so iconic. Uh, I suppose in theory it could have been played by Harvey Keitel since he did play that role in nineteen ninety two, but it's almost a completely a different character in in every single way. Cage is he's hilarious and he, with his dry laughs and his absurd line delivery in the movie and um, I don't know who could have done it maybe like John Cusack at his most like coked out or maybe Jake Gyllenhaal in a decade could have possibly played that role but it's like one of a kind and Cage does something that nobody else could really do and that is sort of the way he is like every like four or five years he comes out with like one role that like really stands out and he, he had a movie come out this year or is coming out this year is a Sundance movie called Mandy that I'm really looking forward to seeing to see what he see what he does in that because it actually looks like one of his good movies. So he's always one of my favorite performers, but Port of Call New Orleans is something that is just way beyond what anyone else I could ever picture doing.
0: Yeah, I almost went for uh, my highest war of Nicolas Cage, one of his random films that he's made over the past decade that are like the straight to DVD movies because He's irreplaceable because if he's not in it, the film doesn't get made. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's a good point. True. Yeah, I mean, I really want to see Left Behind, you know? Like, I would never want to see that if any other actor was in it, so in theory, that should rank pretty highly on the list. I don't know.
0: So yeah, l- looking at looking at a career like Nicolas Cage, you have, you have a lot of options to go with, but uh, we went with uh, Adaptation, The Rock, and uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. All right, next, we have Power Rankings. You can't top
1: that.
2: Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm going to pull an audible at the last minute
1: here. I'm kind of nervous now. Power Rankings. Not including Fargo.
0: Can't choose Fargo ever again. So for this, uh, for this uh, segment of Power Rankings, Zach won our competition last time. So he got to pick our category. So, Zach, why don't you uh, enlighten us on what that category is?
2: Worst Best Picture Winners.
0: Okay. Keeping with the, the theme of being in the middle of a awards race here.
2: Well, I, I think there's only one of us who have seen every Best Picture Winner. And that's definitely not me or you, Terry. <laughs> um, so I think there might be some years where we may be speculating a little bit. Uh, we're, I don't think any of us chose a film that we haven't seen, but there might be some years where we looked at potentially undeserving Best Picture winners when there was another film in that category that maybe merited more consideration. So um, I guess we'll see what what we put on our list.
1: I think there might be a riot if anyone chooses something from 78 or 79.
2: That's fair to say. <laughs> <laughs> Or O six. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, true. <laughs> I think we'd all write if anyone else did that.
0: Okay, I'm gonna go first on uh, on my worst best picture winners, and uh, I I put together a little formula here to uh, to get this some qualifiers. Uh, I know you guys usually put uh, some qualifiers, especially Todd, and uh, and I usually get made fun of for not doing it. So I decided to do it on this one. And uh, it really limited my choices and what I could go with. First, my first qualifier was it had to be a year where I had seen every Best Picture uh, nominee. So that I could truly see if it was a bad Best Picture winner. Um, now, for me, that meant that it limited it only to mo- uh, years 1989 and uh, and above, because I've seen every Best Picture nominee from 1989 uh, moving forward. So that leaves, uh, so that leaves only those years. Then I went through and I looked at um, years that um, the Best Picture winner was not my highest-rated of the nominees on my list. That happened 15 times since 1989. So I narrowed it down to those 15, and from those 15, I went, uh, I went from there. So uh, I went for, uh, my list is the best picture winners that were the furthest down on my list percentage-wise, because there's some 5 movie years, there's some 10 movie years, some 9, some 8. So furthest down my list percentage-wise um, in my rankings of all the best picture nominees. So that really narrowed my list for me, so my list was kind of made for me there. And for me, number five was really the toughest spot because I had about four films that were, or five films that were all right there, and I had to pick which one was going to be my number five worst best picture winner. And the one I went with was 2002's Chicago, uh, the uh, the musical uh, with uh, Renee Zellweger and Richard Gere, Catherine Zeta Jones, Queen Latifah, John C. Riley. It's a great movie, and this is part of the problem for me is. I usually really enjoy all of the Best Picture winners. So I couldn't just go with, well, which ones do I think are the worst rated ones? Uh, That's why I had to go with it in comparison to the rest. Um, I like Chicago. It's one of my lower rated movies, um, however, in my Best Picture winners. And for me, of the five films nominated that year, it comes in third behind The Pianist and The Two Towers. So um, it coming in third out of the five uh, puts it uh, at number five on my uh, Worst Best Picture winners. Not necessarily because I don't like it, but because there are some movies that should have won ahead of it.
2: Yeah, it's 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 not a, a great movie. Um, it's probably more of a summer movie, and that happened to be re- re- released by... Harvey Weinstein um and so it was able to get uh, a lot of kind of Oscar buzz that year um it's an enjoyable movie I don't think it's better than say uh The Pianist or some of the other really great films from uh 2002 which itself was a really great year so I can understand your points
1: yeah I have it the fourth ranked best picture that best picture nominee of that year so i I don't have a problem with that. I do really like Chicago, but uh, it's nowhere near Gangs of New York or The Hours. All right. Uh, Todd, why don't you go next? What is your number five? All right. Uh, My number five is a movie that might not be as bad as a lot of the old Best Picture winners, but I'm putting it on here because it was clearly the worst movie nominated in 1981, and that's Chariots of Fire. Uh, when you're nominated along the likes of Uncle Pond*, which is one of the best movies ever, Atlantic City, Reds, and Raiders of the Lost Ark*, like, all by directing heavyweights, it never make any sense how this corny little uh, British running movie was going to win Best Picture. I mean, it's not a bad movie, but it, it is, I mean, it is pretty corny. It's, it's entertaining and at times interesting, but overlooking, like, all decade-worthy classics like those other four in, in favor of the unmemorable chariots of fire is kind of ridiculous
2: yeah I that's mean, my to, number five today it's mostly remembered for the evangelies uh music and probably the fact that it was such a dark horse oscar contender people sort of overlook the film i actually think the film isn't that bad um i i, I don't know if it's better than like uh, raiders of the lost ark or on golden pond but it has its moments, and I like its exploration of the of the British class system in the nineteen twenties, and its uh, and its depiction of um, religion, religion, and spirituality. All right. Um,
0: okay. Zach, number five.
2: Number five. So, uh, I'm going to kind of copy a little bit what Terry said. You know, most of the best pictures that I've chosen to see, because I have not seen all of them, are movies that I wanted to see, and for the most part, they haven't been that disappointing. Um, I haven't seen, you know, The Greatest Show on Earth or Around the World in 80 Days. I don't want to submit myself to, to doing that. So, um, a lot of the films that I chose on this list were films that just didn't, they, they didn't, compare well with some of the other films that were nominated that year and that sort of begins and ends with my number five pick which is from 1995 which is Mel Gibson's Braveheart which itself is not a bad movie it's pretty entertaining and it holds uh, your attention for its three-hour running length it's pretty brutal and grisly and it's definitely more of a summer blockbuster type film uh, but for it to win over Apollo 13, which is in my top 10 list of all time, is really unthinkable. And even if you move beyond Apollo 13, 1995 is a really strong year. You have Leaving Las Vegas, Dead Man Walking, Babe, Mr. Holland's Opus, Nixon, The Bridges of Madison County, and of course the true best picture of 1995 in my heart, Showgirls. So to name anything above any of those movies, especially a summer popcorn blockbuster made by an anti-Semite, is sort of, an, uh, is sort of a slap in the face. Hard to argue with that.
0: Yeah, it uh, Braveheart was on uh, was on my uh, li- short list of fifteen, but it did not uh, it did not crack my top five. Apollo thirteen, how did Apollo thirteen not win that? That's what I want to know.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, I think. I if leaving Las Vegas, not get nominated.
2: How did Ron Howard not get nominated? You know, oh. I mean, there are a lot of what What were they smoking back in 1995? I don't know. It's a de- debatable year.
1: And Toy Story.
2: Oh, yeah, Toy and Story. Before Sunrise. Yeah, absolutely. and clueless. I mean, there's so many better choices than, than Braveheart, you know and Braveheart's not a bad movie to its credit. it's just it's not the movie people talk about from 1995.
0: Okay. So moving on to my number four. Uh, my number four, um, again, it's not a bad movie, but uh, over the last uh, oh 10, 15 years, it's probably the movie I was most disappointed won best Picture. And that would be 2014's Birdman. I was obviously along with all of us. We were all rooting for Boyhood to pull that one out. Uh, because Richard Linklater's uh, film about growing up in the 2000s was so incredible in how it was made. Um, Birdman wasn't a bad movie, but I was just so rooting for that. However, at the same time, looking at the other Best Picture nominees that year... Um, Of the eight nominees, I have Birdman rated sixth of the eight uh, behind Boyhood, Selma, American Sniper, Whiplash, and The Imitation Game. And then comes Birdman. So, uh, looking at the rest of the movies that were nominated, especially considering that Boyhood was so great and so, like, generationally outstanding... uh, I it, it had to be on my list of worst best picture winners. So, Birdman, my number four.
2: Yeah, hard, hard to argue with your logic there, Terry. It may make an appearance on my list, too, at some point. Just a sneak preview.
1: Alright, uh, moving on to my number four. Uh, I have uh, the 1949 winner, directed by Robert Ross in All the King's Men. And on first look, the movie is actually pretty good. Broderick Crawford gives... Uh, uh, Oscar begging role and he really Nails it it's by a talented director who Would later make one of my favorite movies The Hustler But as you look back on it, it It's really absurdly over the top and outdated uh, It's got a good message To give but it is really Forced and misguided in, at the Same time and The problem likely isn't the movie In general but it's the story which is Reinforced by the train wreck remake That, was, that Sean Penn was in uh, A few years back or a decade back Or whenever it was uh, the movie just hasn't really aged well at all and it, it only gets staler as time goes by and there's one of my favorite movie that was nominated that year was Battleground, which was a lot more memorable and a lot more interesting movie than uh All the King's Men.
2: Yeah, I've actually seen All the King's Men and I would have to agree with you, Todd, it, it has not aged well. It would certainly be in my honorable mention list. Um I think the problem is 1949 is a pretty weak year. Um, my number one film that year is the British film Kind Hearts and Coronets, which I think got nominated for a couple of awards. But, yeah, All the King's Men is a pretty forgettable entry in um, a time when the Academy wasn't always uh, giving its award to the best films. It was really based maybe more on studio politics or whatever. I don't know the logic behind that film, but it's a good pick.
0: I have not seen that, or any film from 1949. So Well, there you go. <laughs> start
1: with bat- Battleground and White Heat. Start there.
0: Okay. Okay. Sounds good.
2: My number four pick is, like my number five pick, not a bad movie in any way. In fact, this is a movie that I would almost borderline give four stars to. Um, It's a movie that really made a strong impression on me when I first saw it. It's just the problem is it happened to be released during a year when there were considerably better options to pick for Best Picture, and that is from 1982, Richard Attenborough's Gandhi. Uh, which has very powerful moments and tells a really impactful, important, significant story about one of the great uh, pacifist leaders of the 20th century, one of the great historical figures of all time. Um, The movie is certainly in the sort of David Lean tradition of a historical biopic, huge, sprawling story with uh, cinematography and great production design and great production values overall and a great score. And brought bren kingsley in his film debut uh, an academy award but i don't think it's particularly aged well uh, not doing the least part to the fact that it's a film about um an indian resistance leader against the british and yet it's and it's directed by a british white british director and starring uh, a white british actor so uh, those kind of politics don't uh, make the film age very favorably but the bigger thing is that in 1982 it went up against E.T., Tootsie, and The Verdict which uh, are far better movies remembered far better and uh, again I I think the Academy voters back then were just wooed over by the big production values and the sort of again over the top David Lean cinematic style Um, so my number four pick is unfortunately even as, as impactful a movie as it is, Gandhi
1: that's a great choice. Uh, I actually really don't like that movie at all. I give it, like, two stars, and so... That actually makes an appearance in my honorable mentions. Uh, that's a good choice.
0: I have not seen Gandhi.
2: It's not as bad as Todd says. It's just... I, I think in twenty in 2018, there would have been a lot different decision-making that would have gone into a Gandhi biopic. But Ben Kingsley is really good in it.
0: Well, Todd gave it two, you gave it four, so I'll probably give it three. That's, that's how it works, so... uh <laughs>
1: <laughs> one for each hour that you're going to spend staring at that movie
0: <laughs> all right moving on my number three uh is the not too uh not too uh, distant history it is 2016's moonlight i uh i will say i have trouble thinking about um thinking about this uh, best picture winner without uh thinking about uh adnan virk's uh, iconic call from backstage of when uh, they realized that Warren Beatty read the wrong name, and Moonlight won Best Picture. Um, but uh, that's—I'm not Fandona even. done s- away
1: read the name actually. Oh, that's true.
0: She did. <laughs> she did. Um, I don't
1: think but that's not—that's not what Adnan said.
0: Adnan said it was Warren Beatty. Well, anyways, regardless, <laughs> um, La La Land was the heavy favorite, and Moonlight was a was a definite upset. But that's not why. Uh, i have it on my worst best picture list it's because of the nine films nominated last year for best picture moonlight ranks seventh on my list um only uh fences and hacksaw ridge do i have lower than moonlight on the list of best picture uh best picture nominees so that puts arrival manchester by the sea la la land lion hidden figures and hell or high water all above uh, moonlight Um, it was a good movie uh, I don't see it as being as uh, as groundbreaking and iconic and um, this masterclass that everybody else says uh, that voted for it for Best Picture. But, um, but yeah, it was definitely something. It was an upset at the time, but also there were so many other better films that were uh, released last year and nominated for Best Picture than Moonlight.
1: Yeah, it's not a terrible choice. I I, I actually really like the movie. I have it ranked fourth with the best pictures that year. Uh, Fences, Manchester by the Sea, and Arrival are higher than it. So, I mean i have a yeah it's in the 30th range of movies in 2016 so i I can accept that that's that's a that's a decent choice
2: see when i first saw it i was not in the right state of mind to see it because it was a few days after a very traumatic event in our country in 2016 so i actually had the opportunity to rewatch it within the last few weeks and it is a great great movie if i had to redo my 2016 list I, i would put it in the top three um so i completely disagree with you terry uh it's uh, really moving and fascinating and it's a great character study and it's totally unlike any other Best Picture winner, not just in terms of um, the racial mix of the cast but also the kind of way that it's filmed and the narrative structure. So I, I got gotta completely disagree with you on that one, Terry. It's, it's a great choice.
0: And I'm not saying it's a Picture. bad movie. I've got it as a three-and-a-half-star
1: movie. I just think that there are other, other ones that, uh, that were better. I agree with that. Okay, moving on to my number three comes from the year 2000. That is Ridley Scott's Gladiator. Uh, it's a choice that most people in my generation and some of my close friends would hate to hear being on this list, but I've never understood the enthusiasm for it. It's definitely not my genre of choice, but um, I mean, it's a movie that's contrived and manipulative. and I mean, it looks outstanding, but none of it feels real because it's all digital. It, I put it in the same category as like 300 which is just, like, brutally violent, loud, sweaty guy action porn. And uh, it's sluggish to sit through, and its iconic status is only because, uh, I don't know, Russell Crowe is a certified badass, I guess. I don't know. It never cuts deeper than the service, but it is always going to look head-scratching in the list of best pictures in future generations, I I would say. And uh, my picks that year would have either been traffic or crouching tiger hidden dragon those would have been far superior choices than gladiator
2: well it's an interesting choice todd because it also happens to be number three on my list of the worst best picture winners and um i think what's fascinating about it is when we look back on it you know uh we'll I I struggle to understand why the film actually got considerable Oscar attention. It wasn't that well-reviewed. I think it got around a 70% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was released in May. It was definitively a summer movie. It wasn't produced by the Weinsteins. Ridley Scott didn't really have a strong Oscar pedigree, and obviously he didn't even win Best Director. Do you think that its win may have been reluctance on the Academy's part to give it to Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon or Traffic? I mean, maybe it said something more about the competition than Gladiator.
1: I, I guess. I mean, it would uh, having a foreign film would be. It would have been a definite step out, and like traffic would have been a, way different than any other Best Picture winner before it. I would assume. So, I guess. I mean, Gladiator is predictable, and. Uh, It it would make sense if it would have won 30 years ago.
2: (laughs) Maybe, maybe, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that it grossed more money than some of the other films that were nominated that year. Um, But I have a real hard time imagining 2018 voters voting for Gladiator. And even its most ardent fans and supporters would, I think, have to admit deep down that it's, like, as you said, Todd, sort of a sweaty... Macho uh, movie, not really a, the type of movie that should win Oscars. So. Uh, and, and comes at a really bad time for CGI. And, it, and the CGI looks horrible in the movie, and I can't see any realistic 2018 viewer watching it and thinking it looks good. Okay. So modern historical epics are not high on Zach's list. Absolutely not.
0: <laughs> okay. Moving on. My number two. Into our top two now. My number two is actually a film I gave four stars to. The problem is, it was up against possibly one of my favorite groups of, this, this is one of my favorite groups of five, like, of all time. And the fact, and it came in fourth that year, uh, just because of how deep this, uh, this list was, and that is 2004's Million Dollar Baby. Uh, like I said, I love Million Dollar Baby, I thought it was a very good, uh, a very, very good film from Clint Eastwood. Uh, Hillary Swank gives an amazing performance in it and deserved her Oscar. Um, uh, Morgan Freeman kind of got his career achievement Oscar for uh, being in this film. Uh, We talked last podcast about how Clint Eastwood did not deserve his Oscar nomination. But the, the film, I have no problem with it getting the recognition it got. However, looking at what else was nominated, I have it fourth of the five nominees. Because it was up against The Aviator which was an amazing Martin Scorsese film. It was up against Finding Neverland, which we've talked about as one of my personal favorites. And, oh yeah, Sideways. It was up against Sideways. And Lost to All These. Ray is the lowest ranked film I have out of those five, and I don't have that much further down than Million Dollar Baby either. Um, Million Dollar Baby is a great film. It did not deserve to be recognized over all these other movies. That puts it number two on my list.
2: Well, I think you're preaching to the choir to a certain extent, because we're all fans of Sideways, and we talked a little bit about that last week. Um, But I think it's a really strong movie, particularly, it's one of Eastwood's best films, certainly, and I think the performances uh, merited their Oscars, respectively, by, by Swank and Freeman. I guess in a weird way, I don't really have a problem with it winning Best Picture. Um, maybe in part due to the fact that Sideways actually defeated it for Best Adapted Screenplay, which was maybe a tacit acknowledgement by the Academy that maybe Sideways was the better film. It's just that Million Dollar Baby had the better marketing strategy.
0: Yeah, The way, the way I'm looking at it is, yes, it was a great film, and yes, I, I didn't have a problem with it uh, getting the recognition. But when 60% of the Oscar nominees are better than it, then we need to look at why it was not why it won Best Picture.
1: Yeah, I could get behind that logic. All right, uh, my number two is from 1946. It's William Wyler's *The Best Years of Our Lives*. Uh, I never bought this movie from the first moment I saw it. it. It 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 is earnest and has its heart in the right place, but it's not a good movie by any stretch, and it's way too long at 172 minutes. Uh, there have been a ton of movies made about coming home from war that have been overlooked by the academy but uh somehow they anointed this corny melodrama which is just sort of confusing it would be like billy lynn's long Halftime walk winning best picture in 2016 which just would not it would not be a good look i do appreciate casting harold russell who is a disabled veteran and the part of a disabled veteran but he gives one of the worst performances i've ever seen in a movie and he, they won best sport. the gave him best supporting actor in addition to his honorary Oscar. They were given in the same year, which is just exploitation almost. Uh, the movie's entire existence, representation uh, at the Oscars, uh, was just a giant publicity stunt in post-war America. And uh, I don't know. At the time, the Academy couldn't resist giving best picture to anything to anything to do with World War Two. They just fell over head over heels, even though. Movies like Battleground, Wake Island, and Five Graves Graves to Cairo went home empty-handed. Corny, outdated, garbage-like, The Best Years of Our Lives ends up winning. It will never make any sense to me. And in a year, It's a Wonderful Life was nominated, like an all-time classic, so it does not make sense.
2: Yeah, I've never seen The Best Years of Our Lives. I've resisted the the, the running length because it scares me. But uh, it is hard to imagine... Um, any film topping It's a Wonderful Life or Notorious, which are two of the best movies ever made that happen to be from that year. If you also look at that year, you have Brief Encounter, um, uh, Children of Paradise from France, Henry V, The Yearling. Uh, there's several good choices from that year, so maybe you're right, Todd, they just got kind of wrapped up in the hysteria of the post war climate. Um, I'm going to move on to my number two choice, which is also from the same era as The Best Years of Our Lives. It's actually from the year after uh, The Best Years of Our Lives won. From 1947 it is Gentleman's Agreement, a film that uh, I recently had the privilege, I guess, maybe not so much privilege to rewatch. Um, it's a film that was made by Elia Kazan, and uh, Elia Kazan later made uh, On the Waterfront, which won in 1954, which is the far superior film. Um, Gentleman's Agreement tells the story of a of a caucasian uh reporter uh who's played by gregory peck and for an assignment he goes undercover uh as a jew and um which you know the content the premise sounds pretty groundbreaking for 1947 america um and there are some moments of the film that do sort of exploit the kind of rampant anti-semitism that even existed among white progressive liberals Uh, But the movie is painstakingly slow, it's really dated, um, and because most of the characters are kind of upper-crust, educated, uh, white-collar individuals, it doesn't really get to the... and and, and they spend most of the time the movie kind of talking over parties and get-togethers and this kind of waspy environment. Um, It really kind of undermines any kind of social social message that, that the movie was trying to deliver. Gregory Peck is really wooden and stale. The most life from the movie comes from Celeste Holm, who actually won Best Supporting Actress for it. It has not aged well, and even though the content sounds really tempting to re-examine, um, it's a film that I think even even in 1940s standards, uh, pretty fails p- pretty badly. So, number two worst Best Picture winner: Gentleman's Agreement*. See you *On the Waterfront* instead. Agreement I have not that, seen sure.
0: *Gentlemen's Agreement* or *On the Waterfront*. I need to watch those. See, we get into the classic stuff, and I I am so far behind you guys, it's not even funny. That's why, I, that's why I'm sticking to what I know. I'm sticking to my lane. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, well, my number one, I feel slightly vindicated for putting this number one because it is a film that has appeared on both of your lists, and that is 2000's Gladiator. Uh, over the last... oh. Uh, 25, almost 30 years that I'm covering in in the films that I've looked at, it is probably the lowest-rated Best Picture winner of them all. I'm right there with Todd in the fact that I've never really understood why uh, this was given such notoriety and such praise and why everyone loves it so much. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the period pieces of that time. Um, And also... Uh, you look at what else was nominated. It wasn't a really, really strong year, which is uh, telling when you see how low it is on my list. I have, um, actually right now, the highest rated I have of that, uh, of that group is Lot, And then I have Aaron Brockovich, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, traffic I haven't seen in a very, very long time, and I know if I rewatch it now, I would have it much higher on my list. Um, and if it is higher on my list, Gladiator would be easily the worst of the Best Picture nominees from that year. Um, echoing a lot of what you guys have already said, um, it, it just doesn't hit home for me. I think it's uh, ridiculous that this one, Best Picture, I think it's ridiculous that this of the three films in a row Russell Crowe was nominated for Best Actor, this is the one he won for. um, and didn't win for The Insider or A Beautiful Mind, which were obviously better movies and better performances. It's uh, it's really ridiculous that this was even honored with a nomination, let alone uh, with a win. So Gladiator was a pretty easy number one on my list.
2: Yeah, and similar to some of the stuff we said about 1995, we really have to question some of the nominations by the Academy that year. Because I would agree with you, Terry, I don't think the best pictures that year are incredibly strong. Um, I actually think traffic has, has aged somewhat poorly in the last 18 years. But to not nominate, like, Requiem for a Dream, or You Can Count on Me, or what our website is named for, Almost Famous, is really irresponsible. And I think that has to go into some sort of logic about why Gladiator rank so high on our lists of uh, worst best picture winners
0: i think you could even put a film like castaway in that list of films that well that might have been nominated now if they hadn't been nominated then
2: and and russell crowe defeating tom hanks in castaway is pretty outrageous
0: so outrageous they refuse to nominate tom hanks moving forward
1: that's true (laughs) all right moving on to my number one uh, comes from 1958. That is Vincente Minnelli's Gigi. Uh, there is no real other option for me. Uh, there's basically no redeeming qualities in this movie, and it's unless you're just really into like old fashioned musicals and costumes, uh, it's instantly forgettable, and there's very little story to speak of. It's all just style and glitz with no substance, and it's uh, uh, unbelievably predictable and stupid. Uh, it's silly and peripheral, only peripherally romantic. Uh, it sticks out like a sore thumb among Best Pictures of the 50s, too. I, I understand awarding something light every once in a while, but this is just stupid and shallow. They actually really botched the category overall that year. I only give one of the five movies a positive rating, and that's the Defiant ones. And yet they, they snub movies like Vertigo and Touch of Evil. But Either way, Gigi is a pretty terrible movie, and I will... I, I don't understand how it won Best Picture, and now it's always going to be one of those stats. Like It won every award that it was nominated for. It won all nine of its awards, and uh, it's always going to hold that, and so it's always going to be mentioned, even though it's pretty bad. And so, yeah, that makes it a very clear choice for my number one. I
0: knew yeah, that would kn- be your number one, Todd.
2: <laughs> yeah, me too. I feel bad for you, Todd, that you actually had to watch it. I didn't have to. Well, I mean, I had to watch all the movies, so... Well, exactly, yeah. Um, He's it's been just strange preparing think... for
0: this list for years.
2: It's strange to think of all the great movie musicals of the 50s and 60s that didn't win Best Picture, like, you know, Singing in the Rain, or uh, The Music Man, or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and, or Oklahoma, and this film is a musical that won Best Picture from that era. It's, it's strange and sad to think. Yes, especially if you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Zach, give me your number one. All right, my number one has already been mentioned on this list, so I'm just going to kind of do a repeat job of what Terry said. Uh, my, n- my number one worst best picture is from 2014, and that film is Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, which after it won best picture, I immediately boasted on Facebook, worst best picture of all time. And, uh, yeah, I got laughed at. But, you know, hey, three years later, I think it still st- holds up as the worst best picture of all time. Um, It's a really unfunny, um, uninteresting, dull movie that gets uh, magnified by the fact that it has an interesting visual strategy which is that Iñárritu shot the film in one take even though he didn't really because he used CGI to make it just appear like it's one continuous take. Um, the movie has outlandish and outrageous performances by Michael Keaton, Zach Alfanakis, Emma Stone, Edward Norton, among others, and the performances are really like Nicolas Cage in some of his roles, you know, they're outrageous, and they're, they try to infuse life into the movie, um, but uh, they really just come off as a distraction in sort of this over-the-top style, and um, The movie has a very basic story and the lines are sometimes painful to hear. The kind of dialogue and the sort of uh, dramatic situations are really cliched and um, predictable. Uh, I like Inyoritu as a director. He's made uh, some great movies. I thought The Revenant was far better than this movie. but Birdman will not age well. Um, even as a cinematic experiment, we've seen better uses of the one take approach, like in Russian Ark, or even Iñárritu's short film Anna from the 2007 compilation film To on His Own Cinema. Um, I just wish that this movie had concentrated more on an interesting story. Than this kind of over the top theatrical self referential approach that the academy really seemed to fall in love with in the mid twenty tens, um, awarding movies that were basically glamorizing Hollywood and the filmmaking industry.
1: Yeah, when I first watched it, I really liked it, and but since I've tried, and it's like really tough to actually sit through individual scenes of that movie. It's it's moved down my list quite a bit too, so I can understand. I can understand that choice.
0: And again, like I said, especially realizing that it lost to or beat boyhood that that just puts it over the top for me
2: and whiplash yeah and whiplash and, and selma whi- i think yeah. those those three films are quite a bit more quite a, have quite a bit more of a lifespan than than birdman will i mean birdman will be remembered as a curiosity maybe in the same respect that the artist will be remembered as a curiosity but ultimately one that as todd you kind of alluded to is, is sort of painful to sit through upon repeat viewings
0: Alright, well uh, let's recap our, uh, our top fives and then we'll uh, discuss some honorable mentions here So starting with me, my uh, top five, number five is Chicago number four, Birdman number three, Moonlight number two, Million Dollar Baby and number one, Gladiator
1: uh, My number five was uh, Chariots of Fire number four, All the King's Men number three, Gladiator number two, The Best Years of Our Lives and number one GG.
2: My number five was Braveheart. My number four was Gandhi. Number three is Gladiator. Number two is Gentleman's Agreement. And number one is Birdman.
0: All right. Uh, So let's go to some honorable mentions. I had four films that were in contention for that number five spot with Chicago. Um, And they were uh, The King's Speech, uh, which uh, was six out of the ten nominees for uh, 2010. Some Dog Millionaire was uh, third out of the five nominees in 2008. Shakespeare in Love, for me, was third out of the five nominees in 1998. And I love Shakespeare in Love, uh, but it, uh, it, it's not as good as Saving Private Ryan or, um, or Life is Beautiful. Uh, and uh, Dances with Wolves was third out of five uh, in nineteen ninety.
1: Okay, uh, solid choices. Uh, mine were 1951's An American in Paris, 1929's The Broadway Melody, 1933's Cavalcade, 1982's Gandhi,
2: and 1936's The Great Ziegfeld. My honorary mentions were Out of Africa from 1985, Chicago from 2002, The King's Speech from 2010, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King from 2003, which I don't think many people remember. Um, They remember the whole trilogy, but I don't know why that film specifically stuck out. And then from 2008, Slumdog Millionaire, which uh, is a film I like because it uh, has an interesting perspective and looks uh, on an an India that's inhabited by non-white people, which is nice, but uh, otherwise not a really good movie.
0: All right. So the, uh, the last part of our power rankings every, uh, every time is uh, seeing if we could predict what Adam's list would be for uh, each category that we have. Our buddy Adam Daly, who is the fourth member of the Almost Sideways team. Um, this time around, Adam was not able to come up with his list before we recorded. So, what we're going to do is we're going to reveal our predictions for Adam's list. And um, off the air, after uh, I reveal or I I receive his list, we will determine the winner and we'll uh, go over how we did uh, in our next podcast. So, my predicted top five for Adam is uh, Shakespeare in Love, Dances with Wolves, Spotlight, Birdman, and The English Patient. That's what I'm going with.
1: Okay, I'm I've got uh, the King's Speech, Shakespeare in Love, Ordinary People, Chicago,
2: and How Green Was My Valley. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Moonlight, Chicago, Dances with Wolves, Crash, and the King's Speech.
0: All right, there's definitely some overlap on those lists, so we'll uh, we'll see how uh, we'll see how that goes, and we'll see what Adam says uh... next time all right moving on from our power rankings it is now time to keep talking about the oscars because it is time for oscar trivia
2: are you ready? well let's hope so he's gonna beat me every time
0: oscar trivia so last time in our oscar trivia competition uh, Todd Really like destroyed Zach in every way possible with the greatest annihilation we have had so far in this uh, in this trivia game we have, um, and so he got to pick a movie for both of us to watch, and both of us to say um, what we thought, um, and that is, uh, Holy Motors, the 2012 right 2012 film, yes. 2012 film that Todd has as his number one of the year. And none of us had seen it, so we uh, we had to watch it to see what we thought of it. And so uh, I'm going to start talking about this. So let me prepare myself to talk about Holy Motors.
2: Okay. Might take a while.
0: I'm ready. Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> this is your number one of the year? What? What? <laughs> It is... Okay, okay. So this is a movie that I, I will give it this. It is about as David Lynch of a movie as has been seen since his last movie, Inland Empire. And it is about as ridiculous as Inland Empire, minus all of the amazing David Lynch... David Lynchian stuff that is in a film like that. It is completely ridiculous and everything. It follows around this one guy... Um, Monsieur Oscar, I think. Isn't that his name, oh, yeah. Mr. Oscar? Yeah, it follows around this one guy for like an entire day. Um, I think he dies three times throughout this day. <laughs> Two or three times he dies. Um, he he eats hair at one point um, after stealing a supermodel um, who obviously doesn't care very much. Too. He eats the contents of her purse, too. <laughs> I, I, this, this is a movie that I, I just, I don't understand in any way. I mean, okay, I will give it this. You kind of have to be in the right frame of mind to understand and watch and enjoy what there is to enjoy about a movie like this. Um, and I watched it on a Friday night after a long week, um, which was not the mindset to be in for a movie like this. However at the same time what the heck this was I I don't get it at all I mean even if you appreciate it like you appreciate a film like Inland Empire there's no way you can appreciate a film like this to the point that it ends up as your number 1 of the year I am I am giving it one star one star <laughs> and that is simply because that 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 main character for playing like the 10 different characters that die throughout the making of this movie Uh, did a pretty decent job outside of that i have no idea why this movie even exists so one star
2: you are out of your mind all right (laughs) zach what did you think (laughs) so um usually when todd and i have a big disagreement about the movie terry usually plays mediator and has an opinion somewhere in the middle and i guess i'm going to enjoy that privilege now (laughs) i certainly don't understand why Todd would have named this the best film of 2012 Um, that's pretty dumbfounding in a way and confusing Um, emphasis on the dumb (laughs) you must have had quite, quite an impactful experience having seen it On the the other hand, I do give the movie props for um, how innovative it is and the fact that it is two hours long and does not contain any coherence uh, of an actual plot that's understandable in any way. And yet it wasn't really boring. Um, It was fascinating seeing Monsieur Oscar transform into these different identities as he has these different assignments over the course of the day, some of which we're not really sure if he's um, assuming a new identity or if this is really him. Like, for example, the scene where he drives what appears to be his daughter home from a party and talks about how she's socially isolated. Actually that's the closest to the to the most realistic the movie gets and I really like that scene. Um from a dramatic standpoint um other scenes that stick out include um an accordion duel as they walk through the square um another scene where he assassinates someone that looks like himself apparently and then slits his throat and then the finale which he returns home to a family of chimpanzees and uh as the car gets put in the garage the cars communicate with each other so i think the best kind of recommendation you can give to this movie is if you like the movie rubber i mean there was something going on in french movies in in the 2010s uh that you know, they, maybe they watched David Lynch films and thought they weren't absurd enough. So Karaks and these other filmmakers wanted to bring it to a new level of, of absurdity. I do think the movie is a metaphor for the death of film stock. Um, I think there it is chock full of cinematic references, even from the beginning. The opening sequence, which really is sort of. Uh, Uh, an homage to Man with a Movie Camera. And you read more about the movie, and you see where Crocs may have had his cinematic influences, and I think there is something to be said about the fact that 2012 is sort of a... uh, uh, an important year for the emergence of digital replacing cinematic film stock so maybe, I don't know, as a cinephile Sorox is trying to say something about that but trying to apply any kind of logic or analysis to this movie is utterly futile you either have to just sit back and enjoy it like apparently Todd did or be annoyed and completely frustrated by like Terry so I choose the middle ground
0: Yeah. I probably uh, would have enjoyed it a little more if I didn't know that it was Todd's favorite movie from 2012.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can say I've never seen a movie like it. Like, from the opening scene where he, like, walks, he, like, wakes up and he walks up and his finger is, like, a key that he opens up the wall with. And then it's, like, a movie theater with this child that is never explained or mentioned again. And there's, like, a dog. And his dog. Yeah. It was just, like, from that moment, I was, like, completely entranced. Like, I had no idea what was going on, but I was loving watching it. And, like, I wrote a review for it, and I I said it was, like, Cosmopolis meets Mulholland Drive meets The Game meets After Hours. And, Mm. but it's not really like any of those individually. It's
2: a good comparison.
1: And, uh, I don't know, it's just one of those, it's one of those things that's, like, the experience of watching it was so different than anything I'd ever seen. And, like, individually, like, individual segments of those, that movie are really outstanding, I thought. And they don't necessarily go together, and they... There's... Yeah, the plot doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it, it is something... It is a movie about sort of filmmaking, in a way, and... Uh, I don't know. I've, I've always really appreciated it. And it was something that was so different than anything else I had watched in 2012, and... uh, Yeah, I didn't... I wasn't really liking my number one at the time anyway, and, like... But a movie that just blew me away and was something different. That was
2: that was what I anointed. Were you just trolling us? I mean, was that the reason you picked this film? I mean, you you must have known our re- our reactions would be a little substantially more muted than yours. Well, yeah,
1: I, I didn't think you were going to love as much as I did. I wanted to know what Terry was going to think for sure. And then, you, I've been trying to get you to watch this movie for five years. <laughs> it's the only way I can get you to do it. Same, same thing with Catch Me If You Can.
2: Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, that makes that makes more sense than context. So well, let's get a rating. Do you give it, Zach? Oh, I, I would. Uh, I am so on the fence here. I thought I would have a better <laughs> answer after listening to both of you. I think in the end, because it's French and because it's pretentious, I have to give it three stars. But I don't think it's a movie I ever want to watch again.
1: Oh, it, it's good on a second viewing too.
2: <laughs> I'm sure it is.
1: Okay. Well, let's get into this week's uh, this
0: week's installment of Oscar trivia. And, uh, and see how, uh, how they fare this time. So last time we, we uh, picked a, a year and, uh, and saw how they would uh, do with the major categories. This time we're picking a very specific uh, uh, category of Oscar trivia. And, uh, and we're going to see how they can do. It's only one category. We're going to go back and forth, see how many they, uh, they can come up with. Um, and depending on how things go, I could see this being... One where you guys might be able to get every single movie in this uh, in this list. This list is, go- kind of going off of what we had for our power ranking, Best Picture Winners with titles that are only one word. One word, Best Picture Winners. There is a list of 24
2: films. So Best Picture Winners or Nominees?
0: Best Picture Winners. Got it. That's what I'm saying. I think this might be something that you guys can run, if you if you if you really uh, if you really put your mind to it. And if you do, I have a backup category that we can go to as the tiebreaker, which is a little All more right. absurd than the one I have. Okay. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. Born ready.
1: Yeah. Go for it.
0: Okay. So Todd, you won last time. So you get to choose Whether you want to go first or second
1: Uh, I'll go first Okay And uh, I will start with Gladiator Gladiator is correct Zach
2: GG Everyone's favorite best picture winner (laughs) Correct Uh, Crash
0: Crash is correct
2: Zach Braveheart
0: Braveheart is correct Todd Uh, Birdman? Yes, so Birdman does not count because it is Birdman or the unexplicably too long title.
1: Okay.
0: I will say Spotlight. Spotlight is correct. Moonlight. Moonlight is correct. Um, Argo. Argo is correct. Unforgiven. Unforgiven is correct. Rocky. Correct.
2: Titanic. Uh, Titanic
0: is correct
1: Gandhi Gandhi is correct Amadeus Correct Chicago Correct Rebecca Correct Casablanca Correct Marty Correct Cimarron Correct
2: Cavalcade Correct Patton Correct Platoon
0: Correct Hamlet Correct Oliver. Correct. Ben-Hur. Correct. Wings. You guys just ran the category. Well done. Which means now I have to go to the tiebreaker one. Here is our, our second category for Oscar trivia. This category is acting Oscar winners to appear in a Batman feature film. Do the animated Batman movies count? (laughs) Animated Batman movies do not count. And they have to be acting Oscars. For example, uh, Ben Affleck does not count. Okay. Okay. There are... Let's see here. There are 15 on this list. So let's see how you do. Uh, Todd, you were... uh, You... Are going first still, so you go first. Okay. Uh, I'll go with Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger is correct. Christian Bale. Christian Bale is correct. Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken is correct.
2: Morgan
1: Freeman. Morgan Freeman is correct. Uh, Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger is correct. Michael Kane
2: Michael Caine. Michael Keaton is
1: correct. Uh, Nicole
0: Kidman. Nicole Kidman is correct.
2: George Clooney.
0: George Clooney is correct. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson is correct.
2: Anne Hathaway.
0: Anne Hathaway is correct. Marion Cotillard. Marion Cotillard is correct.
2: Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy Lee Jones
0: is correct. Jack Palance. Jack Palance is correct.
2: I think that's all I got.
0: Todd, can you... There are two left. Todd, can you get any of the last two? No. <laughs> that, was, that was the last... That was my last resort answer. I wasn't even sure if it was right. <laughs> the la- I'll give you a hint. The last two both come from Batman versus Superman, Dawn of Justice. Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter.
2: And... Uh, I don't know. Uh,
0: no. Uh... Who's, Al- who's Alfred in the new ones? Uh, jeremy irons jeremy irons all right well who are we gonna say won that then
2: i i have no clue
0: because <laughs> zach got the one that was but not it was after a hint But it was after a hint but todd couldn't even get it after the hint
2: i say we just make each other watch a movie
0: that's what i'm that's what i was gonna say too you you each have to pick one for each other
1: or zach can win because i said birdman and that's wrong we could do that, too. We could do
2: that, too. No, I think we give each other movies. That was a tie. That's yeah, as get, close give to it, a tie as me, we're me, ever going to get. Okay.
0: That, it is. It is. That was impressive. That was impressive right there. Okay, so really quick, before we wrap this up and get into our uh, get into our quotes of the day, um, this just in... Adam has sent his uh, his list to me. Breaking and news. uh of his... Breaking news... His, uh, his worst best picture winners. And so we get to see who, uh, who won this one and who'll be picking our next topic. So his list honorable mentions. He said uh, he's picked, he has them picked as well as what movie should have won over it. So his honorable mentions are Forrest Gump winning over Shawshank Redemption and Pulp Fiction, Crash winning over Brokeback Mountain. And his top five number five, The King's Speech over Social Network, number four, Driving Miss Daisy over Do the Right Thing. Number three, Around the World in 80 Days over the Ten Commandments. Number two, The Greatest Show on Earth over The Quiet Man. And number one, Chicago over Gangs of New York or The Pianist.
2: I got two. So, I got two as well.
1: I got nothing. Dude, the right thing wasn't even nominated for Best picture, was it?
0: <laughs> no. I don't think so, no.
1: Okay. Which one so the two got you two? got, Todd? Yeah. I got The King's Speech and Chicago.
2: Yeah, those are the exact same two I got.
1: Where where did, uh,
0: where did you have, Zach, where did you have them ranked?
2: I had King's Speech number one, Chicago fourth. Same. God, how did you have them ranked? (laughs) 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 Another tie. What do you
0: know? Another tie. So I guess you two will have to, uh, combine together to come up with a, with a power ranking. No, uh, I think it's It's going to
1: be Vegas movies because we're going to be in Vegas, right? Yeah, there it is. (laughs) There we go. We both agree. There we go.
0: I, I like it. Okay. All right. Let's wrap this up. Let's get to our quote of the day.
1: Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack, you bastard.
0: Quote of the day. Todd, why don't you go with yours uh, Yours first?
1: Okay, mine comes from a uh, my Nicholas Cage war performance, Bad Lieutenant Porter Call New Orleans. Uh, he's sitting in the car with uh, three guys, and he pulls out his gun. He's like, I'll kill all of you to the break of dawn. <laughs> <laughs> to the brick of baby. And that's a really terrible impression, but <clears throat> Yeah.
0: Look it up. Yes, yes. <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna go with mine next. Um mine is from my Nicolas Cage uh war performance, and that is the Rock. One of my favorite examples of Nicolas Cage going crazy. Um uh, he uh it is when they have been caught. Anyway, so they're in their prison cells. And, uh, Nicholas Cage looks at, uh, looks at Sean Connery and says, you broke out. Let me see if I can get this straight down the incinerator chute on the mine car, through the tunnels to the power plant under the steam engine. That was pretty cool, by the way. And into the cistern through the intake pipe. But how in the name of Zeus's butthole did you get out of your cell? I only ask because in our current situation, well, it could prove to be useful information, maybe! So, there you go.
2: Classic. The intonation really sold it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mine comes from the uh, amazing screenplay to Holy Motors. And it's actually some very memorable lines at the end of the movie when the limousines are talking to each other no it cannot be no it can't i'm coming home as sharp as ever miss 3423 a3 ac92 you'll soon have lots of time to sleep won't be long till they send us to the junkyard what quiet old 5700 bc78 is speaking the truth men don't want visible machines anymore yes they don't don't want no more engines no more action that was some Such tommy wiseau level line
1: deliver right there zach <laughs>
2: <laughs> no no <laughs> I can't. I didn't hit that mark. Uh, Alright,
0: well, uh, once again, thanks for listening uh, to our bit of craziness here, Uh, and uh, if you liked it, uh, subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we will be catching you next time. Rest in peach, Reggie Kathy.
1: Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.